Well, I want to begin by thanking you for the opportunity to worship with you this morning and to pray and praise together, sing these hymns, and uh, to gather our hearts around the opening of Scripture. It's a beautiful, beautiful weekend for traveling, and we have uh, enjoyed our time. I think it's my son Aiden's first time to be in Alabama, and um, so he uh, is temporarily out of the room at the moment because he may well be competing with the sermon if he were in here, so we hopefully he'll be able to make it for part of the sermon today. Love the people here very much, and um, certainly will continue to be in prayer for you during this time of transition that the Lord will be honored and give direction and leadership as he sees fit. I'm thankful that it's his kingdom and not ours, that uh, he is in charge. As the little boy said, God is large and he's in charge, and therein is our hope. I would like to single out one verse from that 27th Psalm, my uh, favorite verse in the Psalm, although there are many good ones there. Psalm 27, verse 4, I'd like to read and then pray again together. Psalm 27, verse 4 says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. I don't know what your mental state is when you approach the reading of the Psalms, but I fear a lot of people approach the Psalms as though they are designed for old people, that they are designed to be read at funerals, something to be read when you visit the nursing home or maybe speak to someone who's in a wheelchair or in some other affliction, but not something that's for young people or people in the prime of life. The psalmist wants one thing, a lifetime in the house of the Lord, says the text, and it sounds a little like great-grandma sitting in a rocking chair with her knitting out on the front porch. doesn't sound too inviting to us, but of course, all of this isn't really true at all. The psalms are very lively. They're extremely relevant. They're filled with adventure. The psalms tend to be myth-busters, as a matter of fact, because they show us something of an inside track that the authors have with the Lord, an inside track, so to speak, of what it means to have real and raw fellowship with the Lord himself. And so the one thing that the psalmist here references is to dwell in the house of the Lord. And I think that's a reference not just to being inside some physical structure, because in David's time, the house of the Lord really was a tent. It wasn't even a temple built yet in his day. But the idea of dwelling in the house of the Lord has to do with dwelling where God dwells, staying where God stays, walking where God walks. It's not just about seeing God at the top of your list. It's about seeing God in every element of the list. God is all over your list and all over your life. So the psalm is, uh, the, the, the verse in the psalm is one of my favorites in the Old Testament, and I have spoken on it multiple times over the years came on my mind this week, and I had a rather interesting experience. I thought as I prayed about this weekend that this would be my text, and as the week unfolded, I realized that time was getting away and there was very little time to study, and so I just kept praying and then discovered that I had actually prepared some things on this before, and so I have, in in the providence of God, kind of resurrected some thoughts I've had before on the text. I hope they'll be interesting to you. Uh, there are three things I want to try to get, because the text is harder than it looks, I, I think. It's, at least in a, a, for a mind like mine, the text is harder than it first appears. So there are three questions I want to ask of the text and try to, as we try to crawl into it. One is a hard practical question, and this practical question is simply, is more really more? Is more really more? 
And then there's a hard theological question I want to ask of the text, and that is the question, are God's sovereignty and man's responsibility at odds with each other? That's an old question, isn't it? It's a hard theological question that the text actually gives us some insight on. And then thirdly, there's a philosophical, it's a hard philosophical question. And this is the question, are head and heart separate or not? It's a hard philosophical question. Head, intellect, heart, emotion, affection, etc. Are those really separate or not? So we have the practical, we have the theological, and we have the philosophical. And the thing I don't like about this sermon, I'll tell you from the start, is it ends at the philosophical. We'll try to get that into the person of Jesus Christ because it's the only way it will make sense to us. Please know that if you get lost in the sermon, it's not because it's deep preaching, it's because it's poor explaining. So I will do my best to explain as clearly as I can. So let's pray now and ask the Lord's help because we're going to need it. Father, I, I, re, I have such respect for your word, and yet my respect for it is not enough. I find my heart bowing before your word, Lord, but I'm not bowing lowly enough. I know your word is both easier and harder than I've ever given it credit for, and yet I don't fully perceive how easy it is, and yet how hard it is. So this morning, Lord, as a little congregation, we're asking that you would come and fill in the places where filling in is needed, that you would come and heal in the places where healing is needed, where we have our broken parts and bits of our lives and maybe large portions of our lives and our brokenness, Lord, speak to us. We pray that you would heal our understanding, Father, for sin has obscured our vision of the lovely one. And so we pray this morning that you would be opening our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word, that you would give me, Lord, the tongue to reflect upon this text in ways that are accurate and excellent and that truly hold the heart of God at the center. And I pray for every person listening, Lord, that you would open our ears and hearts and minds to rejoice in your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the practical, first of all, and the practical question is simply this, is more really more? In the verse, the psalmist says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, one thing. And we are living in a time when one thing seems simplistic. To go into a one thing direction with anything seems simplistic. And yet there is in the text this call to a simplification of desire, the simple, the small, Is more really more? And of course, you know where this is going. The text, I think, is going to say, no, not necessarily. More isn't necessarily more. But we are living in a time when we swim upstream, if that's what we believe. You see, human desire is enormous. Human desire is enormous and it is inescapable. We are built as creatures who desire. We we love, we have affection for, we long for. We're built as creatures that way. And we just happen to live in a culture that is advanced to the point that that desire element of who we are is constantly being exploited. So we are constantly having our desires peaked, our interests drawn this way and that. It's hard to believe that 30 seconds of 30 seconds of airtime on television during the Super Bowl can uh, rack up about a four million dollar bill. Four million bucks for 30 seconds. Why? Because advertisers recognize. Advertisers know that human beings are desirers, that they long for something, they want more. They they may not know what it is they want. They may not know what specific avenue their desires will travel. But human beings are desirers. And if they have a product on which they can make some money and they're able to attract people to that product by putting lots of money toward it, then, of course, it's going to happen, even to the tune of $4 million during the Super Bowl. 
Why is all of this? Because there is this desire element in a human being, this feature about us that we desire to elicit. And so there is the shaping of desire all around us. Well, the way it's shaped oftentimes is the more the better, the more the better. So the risk to us in our culture and one like this is that our wants become large and out of control, that our wants just grow and grow and grow all the way to the point of being like the child in the candy store. That's uh, the proverbial, I suppose, metaphor. Like the child in the candy store. Give me ten of everything is our wish. But the psalmist is saying there's one thing that he desires, and I find this very interesting. What if this morning I could challenge you to reduce your desires rather than enlarge them? What if this morning I could challenge my own heart to take the things that I wish for, the things I long for, the things I want, and lay them out as a list and do a 10% reduction? What if I could go from 100 desires to 90? What if I could take 500 desires and come down to 250? What if I could take 100, run them down to 75, you know, 10 down to 8? What if I could take the thousands of voices that call me and reduce it down to one? What if I could come down to one single desire? What would it be? What would it be? So there is this simplification of desire that King David longs for, and it's very interesting because as king, he has all sorts of privileges at his fingertips. And yet, really, as I believe it's Matthew Henry says, there, there is actually in David this longing to trade places with the priests of the tabernacle. Uh, these priests who, who dealt with blood and gore all day long, every day, and sin all day long, every day. And, and David the king, who lives in a palace, and things are well with him, comparatively speaking. Much pomp, much prestige, much wealth. And yet he longs to switch places with a, a lowly little country town pastor, so to speak. Seems odd. It would be like the President of the United States saying, I'd like to, I'd like to step out of my role and, and uh, just be an itinerant preacher for a while. That's what I'd like to do. It's an odd, odd thing for David to say. I'd like to just, I, I want one thing and one thing only. It's not the head of my enemies. It's not that my country would become the greatest on the planet. It's not that my name would be, you know, given eternal value from, you know, all the ages. Anything like that. It's not any of that. It is that I would be in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Simplification of desire. Simplification. What one thing would it be? Well, now, if you're thinking with me, we read together Psalm 27, the whole psalm this morning. You're thinking, well, wait a minute. This doesn't make sense to me. One thing? One thing have I desired of the Lord? Because right there in the psalm, David asked for many things. It's a ton of them, right? It's a, at least, well, it, there's more than a half dozen. For example, if you look at verse, um, well, verse 9, for example, hide not thy face far from me. That's a request. That's a desire. Put not thy servant away in anger. That's a request. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. Verse 11, teach me thy way, O Lord. Lead me in a plain path. These are, these are requests of the Lord. These are desires of David's heart. So it starts getting confusing, doesn't it? Why in the same psalm would he say one thing of a desired and then go on and list a whole bunch of things? Odd, isn't it? And yet, the fact is, it goes something, I think it goes something like this. Would you, I invite your consideration of this because it's, what if, what if there were one desire into which all your other desires could be absorbed? What if there were one central focus in your affections, desires, interests, longings that could absorb all your others? And have this kind of magical effect of enriching the desires that are worthy and eliminating the desires that aren't. Now, that's the magic bullet to me. If I could find a single desire in my life, if I could find one single aim in my life that would gather up all the other myriad aims in my life, eliminate the ones that aren't worthwhile, 
before I have to go through the pain of discovering that by the school of hard knocks, and enrich all the ones that are good and worthy, then I would have found the, the sweet spot, wouldn't I? One thing. Well, I think this may well be what's going on. If you could imagine for a moment, imagine a box of, um, a box of miscellaneous. I grew up in West Virginia. One of the common things we did on Saturday mornings was go to auction sales. And it was something you did out in the country. And so we'd, we'd go to auction sales, and the auctioneer would stand up and say, one box of miscellaneous. And then he would start to rattle off for the auction. Well, the box of miscellaneous could have just, uh, obviously, as the name implies, just anything and everything. But you pour it out, and you find in that you've got, you know, rubber hoses, you've got belts, you've got bungee cords, nuts and bolts, anchors, washers, wrenches, old receipts, plastic anchors, just name it. You know, you've got this pile of stuff. And then imagine that you could take a magnet, a large, heavy, you know, powerful magnet, and just sweep it over the top of that pile of stuff you poured out of the box of miscellaneous. Some things would be drawn to that magnet, and some things would not. What if, what if my identifying with David's desire, his one central desire, is like the magnet. What if it's possible that I could actually identify with the magnet to such an extent that when that magnet of desire sweeps over all my desires, it picks up the ones that are worthwhile, the ones that are worthy, and leaves down there in the dust all the rest? Now, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? It seems to me that that's what David is getting at here. One thing I have a desire to the Lord, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? Because it is in going where God goes, staying where God stays, dwelling where God dwells, that my desires start to shape up in the right way. It's a very practical point. Very practical. I truly believe that the Lord has the same thing in mind in Matthew 6.33, when he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. We oftentimes think of this way of the cross as being a way of subtraction. And yes, it is. But in this instance, Jesus says, no, it's a way of addition. Seek first the kingdom of God. Yes, it may look as though you're leaving off all these things. Other things are being left behind. The magnet has lifted what's worthy, left behind what isn't. It was able to discern the difference. You were not. You've left behind all the rubbish, so to speak. And it was a life of subtraction? No, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. All those things worthwhile added back in. It's an amazing thought. It's an amazing thought. So, is more really more? You see, in the life of the Lord, as he conceives of it, the life lived with the, the, the with God life, as we might call it, this with God life, less may actually, in fact, be more. And I, it, it could even be very, quite very quite literally, as a matter of fact. So is more really more? Not necessarily. Here the one thing that David longs for results in all things worthy, all things worthy being richly enjoyed and things that aren't worthy being eliminated. It's a practical point. But before we, we could spend a lot of time there, and I want you to keep that in your mind if you possibly can, let's move over to a theological point that's in the text. It's a little more, a little more challenging, but we'll not spend much time there. Because there's a theological, theological uh, puzzle, a sort of conundrum that people have wrestled with for centuries and millennia, but it's extremely practical as well. It goes like this. So David says, one thing have I desired of the Lord. Simplification of desire. But now notice, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. Now, as I started crawling into this text, I started getting bothered by something here that probably has never bothered you in your entire life. And such is my lot. I always get irritated about things that don't irritate anybody else. And so here it goes. I started asking, wait a minute. One thing have I desired of the Lord. 
that will I seek after. Is it from the Lord or is it from my seeking? You see, there's a puzzle here, isn't there? Is it from the Lord or is it from my seeking? One thing have I desired of the Lord. Now, you would think that that would just end right there. One thing have I desired of the Lord, period. Too many people have read the Bible that way. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and there it stops. And if the Lord gives it to me, great. If he doesn't, I won't get it. <laughs> Message of the Bible oftentimes has been misinterpreted to be, have faith in God and sit down and wait. Message of the Bible is have faith in God and get up and get going. That's, see the difference? Here the lesson is, I have desired something from the Lord, and I'm going to seek it with all my heart and soul. I want it as a gift from God, but I'm going to work for it with all my heart and soul. It's both. Now, this gets us at that large question of the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. Is the desire something the Lord grants, or is it something that I seek? Which is it? And you can run this in several directions, just in terms of application. Um, I want you to know that the Bible is constantly about harmonizing these two things, the divine will and the human will, or God's involvement and human involvement. The Bible is constantly harmonizing these things. As a matter of fact, I, I believe that it undoubtedly is the scales on our eyes that have created the, the dichotomy between these two things to the extent that we see it sometimes when we read the literature that abounds on the subject. The sovereignty of God. So let's think about that for a minute. Is it of God or is it of my seeking? Is the Bible God's word? Well, yes, we, we would argue as, as, as evangelical Christians, we would argue that the Bible is the word of God. Is the Bible the word of man? <laughs> now, this gets a t tough question, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. As a matter of fact, the, even the personality of the writers is, is contained in the Bible. The educational attainments, where they have been, where they have not been, to that, that knowledge to which they've been exposed that may have been, quote, secular knowledge, is all revealed as the writing unfolds. Is it a book of God or is it a book of man? Well, the Bible itself gives us a little information about that. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by God. You see these two things brought together. Um, there are lots of ways in which we, we, we wrestle over this. You might ask the question about repentance. I'm going to actually call on us to do that at the end. If I, if I uh, end where I intend to today, I'm going to call on us to think in terms of repenting of wrong ideas and wrong thoughts and running after other gods and all the things that repentance calls us to. But think about repentance. In the Bible, repentance is commanded. But the Bible also says repentance is granted as a gift from God. Which is it? I remember hearing a sermon years ago when I was just starting to realize the Bible was more complicated than I thought. You know, when you're young, really young, you think you've got it pretty well in a bag. Some people do. You probably, those of you who are young, probably aren't there. But that's where I was. I pretty well thought I had the Bible in a bag. Got this book figured out, and I'll tell anybody. Be happy to. I started realizing the Bible's a little more complicated than I thought. This repentance issue came to mind. Heard a sermon on repentance, and the whole thing was a call to repentance. And it was a very good sermon. And at the very end, the pastor said this. He said, and these individuals repented, and these individuals repented, and these individuals repented. And then he says, and may I say, their repentance was granted as a gift from God blew me away. I just about fell over. I thought, wait, this can't be. It's all along been a command, 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 and now you're saying God did it. Which is it? It gave me a headache, and it still does. <laughs> Until I start realizing, well, the Bible says both, and if I am willing to just say, okay, Lord, I don't quite get this. I don't quite get this. My mind won't take me quite where it needs to go to get all of this. But if I recognize that you, Lord, are not creating a dichotomy between these two, instead you are harmonizing the divine will and human will, you're harmonizing these things, I find this to be a gift. I find this to be a blessing. 
The reason I bring that up in this text is David actually points to both. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. And the reason I want you to see it in this verse is that it's probable that most people don't read that verse and say, ah, there's the secret to divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Usually you read that verse and say, duh, it's both. Obviously it's both. That's what I'm asking you to do when you read the whole Bible. Duh, it's both. Whatever it is that human beings do is, of course, controlled by the sovereign God who does control all things to the minutest detail yet without being the cause or the author of sin. I don't know how to explain all of that, nor shall I ever. I've never read anybody who had it figured out, frankly. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. Repentance is commanded, but it's also granted. Faith is commanded, but it's also granted. Coming to Christ is commanded, but it's also granted. So what God requires, grace supplies. What God requires, grace supplies. David wades right into this one. He wades right into it in a very non-controversial non-off-putting way, David prays to the Lord for something and then says, I'm going to work for it with all my might. Now, you may be praying for something right now yourself, something that's been on your mind to pray for for quite a long time, and you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. There have been many times that I have discovered, either in my life or in observing others, that I became the answer to my own prayers. I don't mean to say this irreverently at all. There are ways in which the Lord so works in our hearts and lives that it's possible for us to become the answers to our own prayers. Um, I remember my cousin one time, this is a, this is a church plant in, in many ways here in Gadsden. I remember one time years ago preaching in a town in Pennsylvania, and there were about this many people present that day in a rented facility, and my cousin, my first cousin, was among the, in the congregation. She had moved there, and she said when she first moved to that town, she knew there was not a church of our faith in the town, and she very much wanted that. Turned out that her husband and herself were on the very street a year or two before where we were meeting that afternoon. A year or two before, she said, I stood on this street. She was telling me this that day. She said, I stood on that street, and I looked down that street, and I said, oh, Lord, please grant that there would be a church of our faith in this town. Well, two years later, that's what we were doing. That's what we were doing in Pennsylvania. We were up there doing this thing. Um, this was in Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh area, the western end of Pennsylvania. And... Um, and it did not survive, unfortunately, but the Lord, what the, my point is that the Lord let her become a part of the answer of the very prayer she prayed that day, which I think is part of the Lord's way of doing things. The Lord burdens our hearts for something, causes us to desire it with all our heart and soul, causes us to pray for it, where we'll sometimes even sweat as we pour out our prayers to the Lord, and, and, and then in the process of this, begraces us in such a way that we become the laborers to accomplish the very thing that He is blessing. God's sovereignty or man's responsibility? I will seek it, but God will grant it. And it is both. What if there is a force, capital F, what if there is a force so large in the universe that it actually steers our choices in loving ways that are best for us? What if that's, re what if that's really happening? You know, what if there is a God in the heavens who rules all things according to his counsel? What if there is a God in the heavens who says, when you acknowledge me, I will really truly, sincerely direct your paths. What if Romans 8.28 really is true? That God is working all things together for our good. What if Philippians 2.12 is one of those keys to understanding this? The verse says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What if it's both? What happens, as I understand it, is you chase this God until he catches you. You chase this God until he catches you. I believe that's what David is doing here. Any other approach renders a person 
too passive and God too mechanical or too robotic. The fact is you chase this God until he catches you. It's a little bit like the farmer and the crop. The farmer and the crop. When the farmer is working with his crop, you may ask the question, did the, did the crop come from the soil? Did the crop come from nature? Did the crop come from the farmer? And you know it's both. It's a little bit like a sermon, frankly. If a sermon is blessed of the Lord, sinners are converted and lives are changed and hearts open up and affections to God and those kinds of things. Edification occurs. Sin is repented from. Those sorts of things happen in the process of a sermon. We ask, did that sermon come from man or did it come from God? Yes. <laughs> yes. And we see this every single day when we see a child born. We ask the question, did that baby come from mom and dad? Or did, that, did that baby come from God? It's, a, it's an interesting question, and we're confronted with it every single day of life. And the answer is yes. It is both. Well, it is in this confidence of God's sovereignty that we make choices, that we roll up our sleeves, that we get busy, and that we work. Will we be able to resolve all these questions, deal with all the philosophical pieces of it? Probably not. But David didn't try to go there. He went less there than I did this morning, so I apologize. Uh, but he did go there. God will grant it. I will seek it. May it be so with us. So we have a, a practical piece, right? The simplification of desire. Lord, let me, be, let me just be where you are. That's the one thing I want. And then we have this theological conundrum that David wades right into and really, I think, helps us. And then we have a, a sort of a philosophical thing that I, I want to focus in on and then be done. And that is this question. Are heart and head really separate? Are heart and head really separate? And I want to spend a little bit of time here without holding you too long. I came a long ways to do this, so we'll do the best we can with this. Um, heart and head, next few minutes. Are they really separate? Now, here's what I mean. Typically, we have thought of the head as being the place of intellectual activity. The head is where you do your thinking. And the heart is the symbol for where you do your feeling, where you do your affections, where you do your loves, where you do your desires. So you have head, which is intellectual and brainy, and you have heart, which is uh, you know, a little more sentimental and, and, and a little more emotional. So intellect and emotion, are those really separate? And uh, if you've done some reading in some of the areas that I have, you know that there's some wonderful things that have been written along these lines. The reason the question comes up in this text, though, is David states his purpose. The only reason he really wants to be in the house of the Lord, it's twofold, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Very interesting. Beholding the beauty of the Lord. What we would traditionally call a matter of the heart, beholding beauty. The heart unfolds. The magic of beauty does its thing to us. Our hearts open up. Our affections are warmed. Beholding the beauty of the Lord, he says. It's a heart-level thing. It's not, all of, it's not just about the brain, he says. I want to be there because I want my heart to open up before the beauty of God. But then he says the second thing, and to inquire in his temple. To inquire in his temple. Inquiry is a matter of the brain. It's a matter of the head. And David has somehow fused these two things that for centuries have been taken apart. Again, a, a chasm created between them. David says there are two reasons that I want to be near where the Lord is, because not only is my heart warmed up and my emotions are ordered in the proper way, my affections are ordered where they need to be, but my head is thinking as it's supposed to be thinking. After all, for heaven's sake, we were made as human beings in the image of God with brains, with the ability to think. And the problem in our day and time is that thinking has all gone away from the direction of God's revelation, right? We, we, we ignore the revelation of God and think that we can think more clearly without it. And God says, no, it's exactly the opposite. That if you have the revelation of the Lord, that if this grid is in place that God has put, this, this 800,000 or so words from, from his own breathings of soul, if you have the Bible in your bloodstream, then you're going to be thinking properly. Your thoughts are going to be ordered rightly. 
So the question, are heart and head really separate, does call for something of an answer here. David says, I want to do both, heart and head. Our world often separates the two. Well, what happens when we do that? What happens when we go only head? We go what we call the so-called objective route, only head, objective, which is sort of a misnomer, frankly. (laughs) You know, the whole objective, subjective, you know, objective is supposedly fact, it's research-based, and you've just got ironclad data to back it up. And subjective is, oh, this is how I feel, this is just, it's a whim. Well, really, the dichotomy, again, is a little messed up because human beings are designed to be interacting those things all the time. But, for sake of argument, we'll let it stand for a moment. What happens when we go this so-called objective route, only the head? Well, frankly, what comes out of that is, is, is what a head can produce, which is arrogance and pride, right? A lot of verbiage that may snow the other person over. We, I don't use that word in the South or not, but to snow someone up our way means that, you know, you cover them all over with white stuff so you can't see anymore. So you, only head takes us into these places that are sterile and, frankly, filled with pride. Only heart, only heart will take us into places of emotionalism, sentimentalism, abject subjectivity to where there is nothing but the subjective, so there isn't anything real or concrete to hold on to anymore. If you go one way or the other, you're in trouble. It's amazing to me. Okay, let's suppose you're... I'm going to step into some place I shouldn't right now. Let's suppose you are an engineer or going to be an engineer. I have a dear friend who teaches engineering college there in town, and um, this man um, understands engineering in a way a lot of people don't, I think. Because one of the first things he asks when someone is asking him, should I be an engineer, is not, are you good at math, or are you, you know, you good at tables or charts or graphs or whatever, slide rules, and <laughs> dating myself here. Um, it, it's not that. But um, he asks questions like, um, do you love humanity? Now, wait, that's a heavy question, isn't it? Do you, do you love people? Do you love life? Are you interested in looking at the plight humanity is in and making that plight better. <laughs> okay, that gets the engineering from a whole different level, doesn't it? Why? Because it, it, it starts to bring together head and heart. It brings loves and intellectual ability all into one thing. Are you committed to doing what you can to contribute to the good of humanity by using charts and graphs and lists of lists and long columns of numbers and slide rules and things? Are are you committed to the good of humanity? See, there, there's this drastic problem, and, and, and I do education, so this I think of all the time, but just in the educational world here in our country, there's this drastic problem where there's all this emphasis on what's called STEM, science, technology, you know, um, engineering, mathematics. You, it, all this emphasis on STEM and almost no emphasis on humanity. My question is, what do you do? What do you do? with the engineering? What do you do with the technology? What do you do with the science? What do you do with that if you don't understand humanity? If you don't understand the human condition, what do you do with this stuff? Well, I'll tell you what you do with it. You invent things. Romans 1, you are an inventor of evil things. That's what you become. If you don't understand the plight of humanity. Well, without getting too far out there, I just want you to know that David says, no, I'm going to go into the house of the Lord. I'm going to be where God is. I'm going to stay where God stays because there I see the fusion of head and heart. I see those two things brought together. And when I see heart and head coming together, it bends itself out into all the particulars of my life, all the practical ways of my life, so that I'm not just doing graphs and manuals and charts 
in technical jargon and whatever else, I am a human being, right? For the service of, my, of the people to which I've been called and to the Lord under whom I dwell. Well, our time and place in history and culture has, has given us a very high regard for these two things as long as they are separate. I mean, I believe it's different now than when I first started preaching, and I've forgotten how many years ago, but probably um, over 30. When I first started preaching, there may have been a lot of emphasis on head in the secular world I'm talking about, but maybe not as much on the heart. And the way I see it now is there's a tremendous amount of emphasis on both. There's a tremendous amount of emphasis on the human condition these days and social justice and things like that. Whereas at the same time, there's this tremendous amount of emphasis on the head and research-based decision-making and so forth. But I still see them separate. God brings them together. God brings them together. Um, I see, well, uh, no use going into all of this. Think about that for a little bit. Can we bring these together? Are they going to be separate or are we going to bring them together? I suspect one of the reasons that beauty, emotion, affection, heart, all these things, I can't even think of the right words to put. I mean, I really have thought of it, but there aren't good words to describe this. All those things that we relate to the heart have often come down to personal opinion in our day, which is a very important thing in our day, personal opinion. But it's just personal opinion. Your opinion is your opinion, and you're certainly welcome to have it, we hear. But my opinion is my opinion, and there the twain shall meet. Whereas in the Bible, what we find is that the taste for beauty is something that ought to match our taste for the intellectual. Those two things ought to match. They ought to come together. They shouldn't be so separate that I can say, well, now a research base is this, and therefore it should be good for everybody, no matter who they are, wherever, what they think. Or over here, but beauty, after all, is only a matter of personal taste. Oh, it, that complete opposite, uh, uh, complete separation between the two is exactly what I'm seeking to believe that the psalm is actually seeking to break down. Instead, I will behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. I will see both. I will see both. I think it is very interesting that the theory of evolution has no explanation for the presence of beauty in the world. There's, there's, not real, there's no good reason, in terms of natural selection, there's no good reason that beauty should have evolved. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult conundrum, and I'll not try to go into that. But what if, what if God has created beauty and created something inside us that can perceive it? And when he brings those two things together, there is this, there is this level of joy and this unfolding of heart that is, that is lovely. And that in the regenerate soul, the one who has come to Christ is able to trace that ray of beauty right back up to the sun, the Lord himself. What if all the beauty that God has created is designed to be a little revelation of heaven? I thought that this morning, walking around in Brother Herman's backyard and around out there in the streets. Lovely, lovely homes, beautifully built, masterminded by people who know what they were doing. Lovely trees placed just so. Sky blue that no engineer created. And... um, Absolutely perfect temperature. Walking around, just feeling like, God, you are in the heavens and all is right with the world. Okay. What if beauty is designed to take us to God? That's what it does. I mean, if my heart is right, that's what it does every time I see it. I see something beautiful beautiful that God has made or something even secondary um, that man has made by the power that God has given. And I'm just, my heart is opened up in reverence and awe and worship to God. What if that's the point? What if beauty was made that way for that reason? I'm going to read a tough quote, and, and I'm going to be, I'm, and then try to start pulling this together. Here's a tough quote from a guy that I love, a Roman Catholic scholar named Anthony Esselin. Here's what he says. If the sudden eruption of beauty threatens to pull heaven 
down about us. Sudden eruption of beauty threatens to pull heaven down about us. Then one good way to ensure the human soul will be armored against the divine, which is what our culture wants, right? Armored against the divine, fist shaking, you know, hands outstretched, no God, I don't want you. If the sudden eruption of beauty threatens to pull heaven down to us, then one good way to ensure that a human soul will be armored against the divine is to cultivate the drab, cultivate the slipshod, the ugly. Eventually, the people subjected to such an anti-culture will be unable to appreciate beauty at all or will sneer at it as mere ornament. Interesting. If God has given beauty as a way for us to see him, then it makes sense that our culture would go away from beauty and toward the slipshod, toward anti-culture, as he calls it. The farther we get from God's house, the more of that I think we're going to see. Really, the dissolution of society. So, let's try to pull this together now with all of that. Like I said, this may be poor explaining, so you can take it and work on it yourself. It's uh, like little seeds dropped in the ground. Maybe something will come from it down the road. Maybe you can plow it under and hope for a better crop next year. But let's try to pull it together now in the text. Two entry points. Two entry points to experiencing the glory of God. Intellectual, affections, or emotional. Beauty, intellect. The head unwraps the heart. And the heart unwraps the head. I'll think about it for a minute. You have had experiences both ways, I guarantee you. And you will read books. It is, it is uncanny. You'll find somebody who makes their living, their life is spent saying, ah, if the heart isn't right, you'll never get the head right. And then somebody else who will say, if the head isn't right, you'll never get the heart right. And again, splitting those two things. And the Lord, look, the Lord is making it plain, I think, in the Bible, that both go, it goes both ways. That the, heart, the head feeds the heart and the heart feeds the head. So, so think about it this way. What if the head unwraps the heart? Or what if, the, what if our understanding opens up our hearts, our affections? Here's an example. I, I love the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. That, to me, it's, a, it's saturated with Scripture. It's just a fabulous song. But I grew up singing that song. So I'm 48, what am I, 49 years old. And, um, and so I've heard it thousands of times. Until about a couple of years ago, I'd heard it so many times I didn't hear it anymore. Had not, you know, just listen, 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 hadn't thought of it, you know, just didn't even really think of it anymore because I'd heard it so much. Till about a couple of years ago, the last line of that song, remember what that last line says? That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, God says, God says, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Well, repetition like that tends to bore me in a song. And just, I mean, just like, never, no, never, no, never, no, never, no, never, no, never. And you just kind of get weary of it after a while. And I just thought it was poetry. I mean, you know, poetry's nice, but that's just poetry after all. There it is. Split, see? All wrong. Until my father-in-law explained to me one day that in the Greek, Hebrews chapter 13, the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He started explaining to me something about Greek, which is all intellect, not hard at all. I don't love Greek at all. But in my head, I started listening as best I could. Studied Greek a little bit so I could sort of get, grab onto pieces of it. And he says, in the Greek, there's actually that word never it's one of those places where the word actually stacks up the negative five times. I will never forsake you. And it stacks at five, the negative is stacked five times right there. And my father-in-law said, the writer of, of, of how firm a foundation must have known that. Because he put it this way, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. I started weeping. What happened? Head opened my heart. Getting a little tiny bit of understanding of something that seemed so ordinary, open my heart. 
I believe David's right. I'll go to the house of the Lord because if I can understand something about God, my heart might just respond. But let's look at the flip of that. I want you this time to think of the own illustration in your own life. Has the heart ever unwrapped the head? Can you think of something you were drawn to but didn't know why? Something you loved and you couldn't even put your finger on why. But your, your heart was drawn to it. You loved it. And then later you knew why. You ever had that experience? I mean, if you've ever fallen in love with a person, you know, you know, I, I couldn't get over it. You know, every time I had a thought, I was thinking about Hannah. And then later I found out why. But, you know, you've got affection and you don't have any. But what happens? The heart starts opening up the head. You're drawn to something and then you know why. Well, could I just say that all of that finds its beautiful resolve in the person of Jesus Christ. Who says in Matthew 11, come unto me, all you who are laboring and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Your heart will find rest, he says. Your heart will find rest. Come to me. You're laboring. You're heavy laden. You're burdened. You're under the weight of whatever it is that's suppressing you at the time. The Lord says, if you are oppressed, come to me. And your heart will find rest and dwell at ease. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. It's Psalm 27, 4 in the mouth of Jesus Christ while they lived here. Come. You're going to behold the beauty of the Lord. You're going to find that the heart that has sought rest in everything under the sun and never found it is now going to be at rest. You're going to see the beauty of the Lord, experience the beauty of the Lord that fills your veins with that settling that comes from trusting in the Lord and Him alone. But while you're there, take my yoke and learn. Heart unfolding head. I don't know what it is that draws you to Jesus this morning. I mean, I know it's the Holy Spirit and teaching His Word. But if it's the part about Jesus of him being so compassionate to people who were undeserving, let that heart draw you. Let it be melted to draw you to the Savior. And when you get there, because you thought he was so nice, start learning about him. Because when you learn about him, you find out, oh, he isn't nice. In fact, he isn't even safe. But he is an amazing God. You know, find out about his counsels from before the world began and his choice of a people and his death on the cross to crush the head of the serpent that has waged war against humanity from the fall of man all the way through to the consummation. You're going to learn, 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 learn. And it's not just going to be sterile intellectual knowledge. It's going to be every time you discover something new about this God, your heart just unfolds again. Over and over and over, this dance will occur for a lifetime. And on our deathbeds, we're released to go to be with God. We're heart and soul are forever. Heart and mind are forever fused in perfect praise to the living God. So in Psalm 23, David says something similar and ends with, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 27, 4, he says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That should be our desire because it subsumes every other desire. It resolves a lot of the theological junk that we try to, you know, that we get tripped up on. And it brings us into a philosophical place where philosophers will never get you, where true heart and head are brought together in the praise of the one who is worthy. So will we repent or not? Will we repent of our wrong views of God? Will we repent of those areas that aren't under the one desire that is right and good and true? Will we turn from ourselves to trust in the living and true God? That's, that's where we need to be. One thing, one thing is needful. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is a lot to think about this morning, and I confess that I'm a baby, just an infant making sounds that don't always make sense, but I know that you are a Father who interprets our sounds. You understand our groanings. You know our wrestlings. And you're able to guide us, Father, and so we trust you, Holy Spirit, Son of God.
please come. Make us more fully your own. And we can't be more fully in any kind of legal or judicial sense. But experientially, Lord, and in knowledge and understanding, make us more fully your own than we've ever been. That we may glorify you. That our desires may be centered in that one desire, even as King David of old, who would find one day in the courts of God better than a thousand. So may it be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.